All right. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Christian. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word does speak to our relationships, that so many of us have been modeled poor relationships, how to deal with other people so poorly, and yet your word does speak into that. And we thank you uh, that your word speaks into every aspect of our life, including our relationships. And as we study your word, we can actually become better at relationships, not have perfect ones, but we can become better at it. We pray that as we turn towards your word right now, you would help us to apply it to our lives, to understand it, submit to it, apply it, that we would continue to grow in you and continue to show your light to the rest of the world. In your name we pray, amen. During the earthly ministry of Christ, Jesus made two distinct claims. The first claim was that he was the Messiah. The second claim that he was God come in the flesh. The Son of God come in the flesh. So those are the two distinct claims that he makes during his earthly ministry. So his earthly ministry was three and a half years. During this time, he was saturating the land with this claim. Now, let's say someone comes up to you and says, hey, guess what? I got something really cool I got to share with you. I'm God come in the flesh. What are you going to do? How are you going to react to that claim? You're going to probably say, and I'm calling 911 because you're crazy, right? I mean, someone to have that claim is just crazy. Unless someone can do some pretty amazing miracles that authenticate that claim, right? Like maybe, I don't know, raising people from the dead. Someone who has been blind their entire life receiving sight. Those are pretty incredible miracles, and that was the whole purpose of those miracles, was to authenticate the claim that he is God, come in the flesh, the Messiah. So here he is, walking around, claiming to be the Messiah, God come in the flesh, and he's authenticating this claim with some pretty amazing miracles. For a group of Israelites, namely the religious leaders, the Pharisees, this was a hard pill for them to swallow. And I think the first reason is, although he was performing the signs that the Messiah was supposed to perform, he wasn't who they thought he'd be. They were busy looking for a righteous ruler, a a man of nobility, a man with power, someone from the upper echelons of, of The status, right? That's what they were looking for. That wasn't what Jesus came as. He came as a lowly man, a common man, a man of the people, a man who cared for more than just the Israelites and for the religious leaders of the day. That was offensive. That was a stumbling block. How dare you care for Romans? Don't you know they're the oppressors? You should only care for Israel. The second reason is that they were afraid that they might lose their standing, their power, their prestige, and their authority. To recognize that Jesus is God come in the flesh meant that they would have to submit to his authority. and thereby 
lose their own authority in their own life. It was a control issue, wasn't it? I think we still struggle with that today. How many of us don't really want to submit to the authority of Christ? That see that lamp lighting the way and think, but I don't actually want that. I want to have control over my own life still. So we can look at the Pharisees and say, oh boy, I'm nothing like that. And yet I think we all struggle with being a Pharisee ourselves. So as Jesus rises in popularity, they begin to oppose him. The Pharisees begin to hate him more and more and begin to plot against him. Now it's important to realize that these Pharisees controlled the synagogues. The Pharisees were seen as the most religious in all the land. They were the super righteous religious people, right? The super spiritual righteous religious people. They were the ones that really loved God. They were the in-group. And they defined who the in-group and who the out-group would be. In fact, they could define whether or not you would be in the in-group. So in Israel, there was only one temple. So the communities that were too far away from the temple had synagogues. This was the place where the scriptures would be, where the Old Testament would be held, where they would gather together to submit their lives to Old Testament. It was the hub of community life. So if you wanted to be a part of the community, you better be in good with the synagogue. And if you wanted to be in the synagogue, you better be in good with the Pharisees. So Jesus is gathering all these followers, preaching that he is the Son of God come in the flesh, the Messiah, and he's got the signs to authenticate it, but he also knows that he is hated among the Pharisees. So Jesus knows that all the people will eventually have to make a decision. Will you follow him? Or will the weight of the world be too much and you will continue to follow the way of the world? That seems like an easy question. Jesus is doing miracles that authenticate the claim, right? Of course I will follow him. And it's easy for us to look back and think, of course you're going to follow him. He's, he's God come in the flesh. He rose from the dead, of course. But if you were a Second Temple Jew, you'd have to realize that following him might mean being cut off from all community. Following him might mean losing your job. Following him might mean never being able to go to the marketplace. Following him would mean having to wait till the afternoon to go to the well to gather your water in the heat of the day. Following him would mean your friends were no longer your friends and your friends would no longer talk to you. In fact, your friends would spit at you. Following him meant having an isolated life from community. So you'd be faced with this question. 
Am I going to follow him? This man who claims to be God, come in the flesh, who claims to be the Messiah, who is actually performing the miracles to authenticate the claim. Or do I still care more about the comfort of my own life? But I think there's another reason why people chose to continue to follow the Pharisees instead of Christ. Jesus is going to make it very clear that only he can make you righteous. The only way you can be righteous is through Christ. But the Pharisees, and I think the world in general, try to argue that you can do it yourself. That you can be good enough. That you can earn God's favor. Maybe you can even work hard enough that God owes you. Last week we talked a little bit about let's make a deal theology. I think it's the world, one of the world's operating systems. If I just work hard enough, if I'm just righteous enough, if I'm just good enough, then God will own me. And let's make a deal theology and legalism, the idea that you can earn God's favor, go hand in hand. God can make me, can value me more than others. I'm more valuable in God's eyes than that lowly prostitute. I'm more valuable in God's eyes than that drug dealer. I'm more valuable in God's eyes than that homeless person. I'm more valuable in God's eyes than that Democrat. I'm more valuable in God's eyes than that Republican. I'm more valuable in God's eyes. And that's legalism. And the two go hand in hand. And no one wants to hear that they aren't good enough. No one wants to hear that they can never earn their righteousness. No one wants to know that it's not based on what I do, but on, based on what he does. Because deep down inside, we all want to think that we can earn it. If only I have the right doctor. If only I have the right theology. If only I have the right words. If only I just cut enough bad things out of my life and introduce enough good things. If only I give enough money, then I can actually be more valuable. So everyone loves being told that you can do it. You can be better than that other person. We like to break the world down into hierarchies and think that we can climb to the top and that we can be the best the most favored, the most valued, not like those worthless other people. So I think people picked the Pharisees for two reasons. One is they didn't want to be cut off from communion. But the second one is they wanted to go with the world's operating system. Legalism and let's make a deal theology are very persuasive. Just work hard, and you can be righteous, just like the Pharisees. So Jesus is forcing them to make a decision. He's forcing them to make a choice, and he does this by confronting the, the Pharisees' theology. He does this by confronting legalism. 
And that is what the sermon, one of the major themes, I should say, of the Sermon on the Mount. It's confronting the Pharisees and confronting their theology and forcing the normal, everyday Israelite to make a decision. Am I going to trust in legalism? Am I going to trust in myself? And am I going to follow the world's way? Or am I going to follow Christ? And that is what we will begin to study today. That is what our new series is going to be about. That's why it's called Following. We're going to walk through the Sermon on the Mount, which I believe is uh, forcing the Israelite into making a decision. And so that's what we'll open up with today. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5. So once again, he's been saturating the land with this message. He's been authenticating the message with these miracles. And the crowds have been following, and his popularity has been growing. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, so starting back in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them. So if you wanted to picture this, the crowds have been following him, the multitudes have been following him, and he has his disciples, those who are, are following him more intensely. So you can even kind of picture it like this. There's Jesus, and then just beyond Jesus are his disciples. His disciples are those who are intensely following him. They're doing it with purpose. They believe the message and they want to find out more. And so they're, they're like taking notes because they're really interested in what he has to say. And then beyond him, beyond the disciples, are the multitudes. The multitudes are kind of there because he's performing miracles, and they really like miracles. They want to see more miracles. And they're interested in what he has to say, but they're not completely sold on this idea. And then you can imagine beyond that, there's a third group, and that is the religious leaders, the Pharisees. So if you imagine Jesus standing up and talking, you've got the disciples that are kind of close, you've got the multitudes a little bit further off, and then you've got the Pharisees, and you could kind of imagine them out in the corner together, talking, whispering, taking notes, but not because they want to learn from Jesus, but because they are looking for weapons to use against him. I think it's easy when you want to find something wrong with someone, it's really easy to make that argument against them. It's really easy to search and look for reasons why they are wrong. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. They're sitting in the corner. They're taking notes. But the notes aren't to learn. The notes are to use as weapons for later. And I think Jesus is addressing his disciples. I think Jesus is addressing the multitudes but he's also looking over to the Pharisees. And he's addressing the Pharisees, and he's directly confronting their legalistic system. And so, he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, 
Now, we're going to get into the section that are, that's called the Beatitudes. The, we get this term from the Latin, which means blessed. But I think we kind of get it wrong with this term, blessed. Uh, the actual term is makarios. So the Greek is makarios. Say it with me, makarios. Ready? We'll try that again. One, two, three. Makarios. Okay, so makarios. Makarios doesn't actually mean blessed. In fact, there are other places in uh, the Bible where we can see the word, the Greek word for blessed, and it means like to have favor from God. And some translations I've even heard him say, God blesses the poor, and that's a really bad translation. It's not that God has favored the poor. Blessed, we don't actually have a really great word to translate here, the makarios. It doesn't mean blessed. It doesn't mean happy. It's actually something that they would have used as like almost like congratulations. So like it was used when someone was getting married and you'd come to the wedding and what would you say? Makarios, this is awesome. This is a deep thing that, that should bring you joy. Makarios, congratulations. Or when someone was having a baby, you'd come when you finally got to visit the baby and you'd say, Makarios. I mean, when we come see somebody with a baby, we say, congratulations, this is awesome, right? Makarios, congratulations. A baby is going to be so much work, but it's going to bring you so much joy. Makarios, congratulations. So that's what this word really means. So as we get into the, the Beatitudes, I want us to read it as more of like a congratulations, which kind of really puts an interesting thought on this, right? So blessed are the poor in spirit. Makarios! You're poor in spirit. Congratulations. You're poor in spirit. Now, this term poor doesn't mean just like poor. It means absolute poverty. So it's not just like someone that skips a meal here and there because they can't afford it. Or maybe, you know, when we think through someone in poverty, we think, oh, man, they're so poor, they can't afford a phone. They don't have a cell phone. They must be poor. Oh, they, they're poor. They don't have the Internet. That's not what this means. This is something that's way more. It's absolute poverty. Someone who might not even be able to afford food for a week. They're on the brink of starvation. They're so poor that they are desperate. Absolute poverty. You have no clue where your next meal is going to be. So someone who is poor in spirit is someone who is so broken, who is so desperate that they realize that they bring nothing to the table. God doesn't owe them. They can't make themselves righteous. And this is a direct confrontation on the theology of the Pharisees. The Pharisees thought they could do it themselves. They even had this idea that God owes them. They thought they brought something to the table for God. And Jesus is flipping this around. The only people that will ever access God are those who are so utterly broken, so desperate, that they will realize there is nothing they can do. Spiritually, they are in poverty. They bring nothing to the table. If you think you bring something to the table, if you think you bring something to the table, if you think God needs you, then you struggle with legalism. Makarios, 
congratulations are the poor in spirit. So in that culture, the thought was the Pharisees have done enough, therefore they are blessed. They are the ones that get to enter the kingdom. And Jesus is directly confronting this idea. Jesus is saying, those who realize they bring nothing to the table, those who realize their good works are not good enough, are actually the ones who are closer to God. So congratulations, those who are absolutely broken, those who are hurting spiritually, because you've realized, you've come to the point where you know you can't do it on your own. And you're a step closer to putting your faith and trust in Christ. Next, blessed are those who mourn. This is something you usually hear in a funeral, right? You walk into a funeral, and what's the first thing? Congratulations, you're mourning. Macarios, congratulations, you are in grief. No, we've never heard that at a funeral. But that's what Jesus is saying here, right? Macarios, congratulations to those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn are are those who recognize they can't handle the hurts and the pains of life on their own. Those who mourn, those who are in grief, recognize that there is a brokenness to this world, that this isn't the way that God created it to be. This is not how it was supposed to be. If you've never mourned, if you've never grieved, you think that this is how it's supposed to be, that this is how God created the universe, the world to be, that God created us to be in rebellion, that God created us to be struggling with death and pain. But those who mourn realize that there is a brokenness to this world, that there is a pain that God didn't create the world to be in. And when we come to that point, when we are so hurt, when we are so desperate and spiritually broken that we begin to mourn the brokenness of this world, we turn to God for comfort. The one who can give us real comfort. So Makarios, congratulations to those who mourn because you realize that this isn't the pain that God had intended for the world. Macarios, congratulations to those who are mourning because you realize that sin and rebellion against God has broken this world. So though the Pharisees were under Rome's rule and knew that this was not how it was supposed to be, they didn't realize that they were also in rebellion. They blamed everyone else They thought everyone else was in the wrong. This is Rome's problem. This is Rome's fault. And they never took the time to ask, how do I contribute to the brokenness of this world? I think we do the same thing in our own culture. We can see the problems of the world, but rarely do we ask, how have we contributed? We like to justify our actions. We like to think that we aren't at fault. So instead of mourning God's creation, We are angry, we are defensive, and the result is we look just like the Pharisees. We become judgmental, 
because they are the ones in the wrong and we are the ones in the right. And so we've found our in-group and they're not a part of it, but a part of the problem. So instead of following after Jesus, someone who ate with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, who experienced a heartbreak for the broken, we see them maybe as projects at the best, but most of the time we see them as problems to be handled. So we are congratulated when we mourn the evil of this world. And as we mourn, we are comforted. And God comforts us because we mourn. And as we realize this world isn't how it is supposed to be, we turn to the one who can right the wrongs. The one who will one day return it to the way it is supposed to be. So he says, Makarios, to those who mourn. Because you realize there is something better. And that is your comfort. That God will one day undo all the wrongs. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek. Blessed. Makarios, congratulations, are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Now there's a lot of debate around this word meek here. Uh, other places in the New Testament, it's actually translated as gentle. And a lot of people make a big deal of that. Uh, gentle, uh, that's the typical translation. And gentle means strength under control. It started off actually as, actually as a reference to a horse bit. And if you know, just because you can get the bit into the horse's mouth, does not mean the horse is all of a sudden weak, right? Like, putting the bit isn't kryptonite to the horse. In fact, you better remember that that horse is still very powerful as you climb on board with the bit in its mouth. Because when you forget how powerful that horse is, is when you get bucked off and when you end up paralyzed or deaf or dead. So, it's not weak. It's under control. And that's what that term gentle is. It's strength under control. But I'm not sure that's what Jesus is getting at here. This word can also be translated as meek, which means mild-tempered. Or it can be humble, thinking of yourself as lowly. And, and there's a lot of debate, and I think we can even kind of lose the point in the midst of this debate of what the actual definition or translation should be. The point is, all three of those, to be gentle or meek or humble, was not considered a virtue in that culture. It was actually considered as weakness. So though it was thought, the thought was, it was dog-eat-dog world. That at any moment, the next person is going to come along and stab you in the back. So instead of being meek, instead of being gentle, instead of being humble, you should be vicious. You should be a warrior. You should be savage. It's a dog-eat-dog world. You better take advantage of other people or they will take advantage of you. No mercy. You better fight, and you better fight to win. 
that was the thought. So the more you fight, the harder you fight, then the more you will have. You want to build your empire? Become more like Machiavelli, right? Although he came along later. But become more like him. Become Machiavellian. That's how you build your empire. And what Jesus is saying is radically different. He's directly confronting the thought that the Messiah would be this savage warrior, the righteous ruler, the guy that would be Machiavellian enough that he could overcome Rome. He's saying, no, 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 that's not it at all. If you want more, stop fighting. If you want more, stop being savage, stop being the warrior. And start to be gentle. And love others with a radical love. A love that says, I have the strength to crush, but I never will. It is those people who show this gentleness, this meekness, this humility, that will one day inherit the earth. He continues on. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. So hunger and thirst are powerful drives. When people are starving, they will eat almost anything. Their hunger drives them. Everything else can begin to take second place. As busy as you are throughout the week, you always take time to eat at some point, right? You may ignore that rumble in your stomach for a while, but eventually, it will catch up. You can only ignore it for so long. And then you will stop, and you will eat. And the same goes for thirst, right? You can only ignore thirst for so long. Eventually it will catch up to you. So these are powerful drives to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. Righteous mean, righteousness means God's moral standard. Jesus will cover more of this later. We'll get more into what God's moral standard means later. But the point here is that those who have a drive for God's moral standard will be satisfied. Now, who hungers and thirsts for justice? Who hungers and thirsts for a moral standard to be upheld? It's those who have never been wronged, right? If you've never been wronged, you really care about justice. Those who have never experienced the wickedness of the world, who have never experienced the pain and the hurt of evil, those are the ones that really care about righteousness, right? I don't think anybody out here is like that. Everybody has experienced injustice. And those who crave justice, those who crave righteousness, are the ones who have been wronged the most. The ones that have felt the sting and the pain and the hurt of injustice. They will be satisfied. The satisfaction will come at the end. He doesn't say they are being satisfied. It's not in the present tense. It is a future tense. They will be satisfied. So we may not see the satisfaction in our lifetime, but one day we can trust that God will make everything that is wrong right. 
And knowing that will, will, be, uh, sati will satisfy us and help us to keep going. I like to think of it as like you come home and you're really hungry and you smell this delicious food cooking, right? Now let's say that you can't actually eat that food. Maybe whoever's cooking it is cooking it for someone down the street. Like it's a, a, a ministry that they're going to do. And so you come home and you are like starving. You're so hungry. Your stomach's rumbling. It's taking over control. And you smell this amazing food and you know it won't be satisfied. You won't be satisfied. Do you hang out in your house just to be tempted, just to be tortured by this delicious smell? No, you're like, forget this. I'm, get, I'm leaving this house. I'm going somewhere else where I don't have to smell this delicious food. But when you know that that food is being made for you and that you're going to be able to bite into it soon, it helps you stay. And that to you, that smell is one of the best smells on earth at that moment. And I think it's similar with this, that you have been wronged, you know that there is injustice in this world, you, you are hurting because of it, but you also know that one day God is going to right those wrongs, and you can smell the justice. You're hungry, you're driving for justice, and you can smell it, and you know that at the end of the day, when all is said and done, God will undo all the wrongs and will make them right. And that helps you to keep going. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So Makarios, congratulations. You're merciful. Mercy means to withhold punishment. God displays his mercy to us in that while we deserve death, an eternal separation from God due to our sin and due to our rebellion, he paid the price for us, thereby not holding the penalty against us. So at first, when you read this, Makarios, congratulations, are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It almost sounds like he's saying, in order to receive mercy, you must be merciful. And I don't think that's what he's getting at. I don't think that's where, what this is about. If that were true, then mercy would have to be earned. And God's mercy is not dependent upon our mercy. Instead, what I think it means is that you will never fully experience the freedom of God's mercy if you are not merciful. How many Christians do we know that are angry and are bitter and do not have joy, that constantly hold grudges, that are quick to remind you of your sin, that are quick to remind you of your failures? And I think the reason is because they are not living in the freedom of God's mercy. They are still trying to earn it. So because they don't understand God's mercy, they don't extend mercy. And because they don't extend mercy, they don't experience the freedom of God's mercy. And they never will until they learn to forgive and to extend mercy. Are you holding an offense against someone? Do you refuse to forgive someone? Would you like to experience the freedom of living in God's mercy.
time to let the offense go. Continues on, verse 8. Blessed are the pure of heart. Makarios, congratulations! You're pure of heart. For they shall see God. Purity of heart means integrity. To be the same both inside and out. Your thoughts and emotions match your, match your behavior. Who you are in private matches who you are in public. The Pharisees were really good at making themselves look righteous. They knew how to act to make themselves look pure. They had a rule-oriented purity that Jesus rejects because it masks that inner corruption. Their hearts were deceitful, their hearts were wicked, but they knew how to cover it up with behavior. And Jesus is saying, that's not how this works. That's not how this operates. But once again, how often do we follow after the Pharisees? How often do we do that? Where we have a rule-oriented purity that masks our corrupted heart. Parents, we often know the pain of sin. We know the pain that wrong moral behavior will bring. And so we teach our kids right moral behavior, don't we? But how often do we stress the behavior and leave behind the heart? How often do we correct the behavior but not capture the heart? So we focus in on behavior modification, but behavior modification is worthless if we don't capture the heart. Because if we don't capture the heart, the behavior, even if modified for now, will eventually follow the heart. So even if you're able to modify your child's behavior while they were living at your house, if the heart isn't captured after they leave, at some point down the line, that behavior will follow the heart. And if a heart is not so in love with God that it is willing to submit every aspect of our lives to Him, then we will still be in rebellion against Him. So I would argue it is much better to focus in on the heart than on the behavior. It's much better to focus in on capturing your child's heart and redirecting it towards God than just focusing in on the behavior because the behavior will eventually flow from the heart. So these persons, Makarios, congratulations for the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Seeing God is a way of saying having intimate knowledge of him. You can memorize a lot of facts, Bible verses, doctrine. A lot of the Pharisees had the Torah memorized. That means they memorized the first five books of the Bible. You thought Awana was intense? That's nothing. They knew facts about God. They had doctrine. You can memorize all this, but still not see God still not have an intimate knowledge of who he is, who his character is, because you don't know him, because you've been so busy focusing in on all the external instead of the internal. I'd say it's a lot like the difference between knowing a lot of information about George Washington. School just started back up. I'm sure there's a lot of kids memorizing a lot of facts about George Washington, right? 
It's the difference between memorizing all these facts about George Washington and being Martha Washington, right? Because when you're Martha Washington, you know him on a personal level, and you're probably even a little bit annoyed about all the facts that are wrong. Like, George wasn't really like that. So you don't know his character because you're still trying to earn his favor and his mercy. You still think it's all about your behavior and not about who he is. So you're not spiritually desperate. You think you bring something to the table. You're still trying to know him through your own strength. And as long as you do that, no matter how much knowledge you have, no matter how much doctrine you have, you still don't know him. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So we need to first point out, this does not say blessed are the peaceful. This is not a passive, but an active. People who strive for peace. People who do not go on the attack, but seek out peace. Now this doesn't mean that you should just be a pushover. Jesus did a great job of modeling this type of peacemaking, right? He stood firm in his claim that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. Even in the midst of the attacks, he stood firm in his claim and went all the way to the cross and died to make peace between God and man. Even as man was crucifying him, he was willing to make peace between God and man. His earthly ministry was about making peace. But the people still rejected him. And I think that shows and reveals to us that we can expect others to reject it as well. And next week we'll get into that a little bit more, but for now we can be assured that the world will reject our offer of peace. God knew that. But he didn't say make an offer and after the rejection go for the jugular. The congratulations, Macario, comes from those who strive for peace. Congratulations, you're striving for peace. So those who are truly called God's children will bear a likeness to their Heavenly Father who, ins who treats his enemies well, so well that he's willing to die on their behalf. There is one more Makarios. Makarios are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to dive into more of that next week. But for this week, I want to just kind of cover, and I want to point out that the first and the last are both present tense. Everything else, everything in between is future tense. Makarios, congratulations to those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Makarios, congratulations to the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And it goes on and on, except for the first, Makarios, congratulations on the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the tenth one, theirs is the kingdom of heaven again. And in this we see what theologians call the here but not yet. The idea that Jesus has victory over all evil, Jesus has victory over the accuser, Jesus has victory over sin and our rebellion. We no longer have to be slaves to sin. Jesus has the victory. So we get to have freedom from sin and evil and the accuser, but the victory has not been consummated yet. 
That's the here, the victory is here, but not yet. It hasn't yet been consummated. So the war is over, it is finished, and yet there are still pockets of battles. There are still pockets of fighting going on. And those pockets, we still experience the war. We still get caught up in the not yet, even though the victory is here. Knowing that the victory is here and will be actualized in the future helps us keep going even when we are broken to the very core, even when we mourn, even when the world falls apart and we feel like we are under constant attack, we know that the victory is here and will be actualized fully in the future. So in a world full of turmoil, a world where the operating system is always, you are only as valuable as what you produce. In a world where everyone is out for themselves, that everyone is just trying to get yours. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, so you better fight, and you better fight hard, and you better be a savage. The Beatitudes begin to flip everything upside down. Christ explains a new way of approaching life. And it's no longer the world's way. It's no longer the world's operating system. But it's God's way. It's God's operating system. But this life isn't really about us anyways. This life is really all about God. And in the end, we are forced to answer the question, who are you going to follow? The world's way or God's way? Makarios, congratulations to those who are spiritually broken and desperate. Makarios, congratulations to those who mourn. Makarios, congratulations to those who show mercy. Makarios, congratulations if you are ready to give up pursuit of your own happiness for a life dedicated to Christ. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We realize that our operating system is legalism. Our operating system constantly turns back to this idea that we have to earn favor. And yet you have an operating system of grace and mercy. And we thank you so much for that. We pray that as we study your word, as we study your Sermon on the Mount, we'd give up the world's way and follow you. In your name we pray. Amen.